Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are The Natural Selection. On today's show... It's that age-old question. How long will a five-inch layer of goose fat last in the channel? <laughs> Tell you what, another animal that's coming to mind... Mm. I think beavers would homeschool their kids. Yeah, beavers are homeschooled. Napoleon's wife had one of the first pet wombats in Europe. Whoa. <laughs> We've been screwing around for too long on this podcast, and it's high time we spoke about the English pre-Raphaelite art movement known as the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood of 1848 to the 1900s. Everyone's been clamouring for it. It's all I get in my DMs. Exactly. <laughs> Guys, when are you going to talk about... I thought I was going to be able to repeat it. About, <laughs> about the Pre-Raphaelite, Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood of 1848 to 1900. <laughs> Thankfully, we're finally answering you, listeners. At long last, we're cutting through this goose-based chat to deliver the art history lesson that people have wanted. As we all know, this movement was in opposition to the Royal Academy's promotion of Renaissance master Raphael's work and in revolt against the triviality of the popular genre painting at the time, which depicted scenes of the everyday life, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood believed in an art of serious subjects treated with maximum realism. Stick with us, listener. Spearheaded by three artists in particular, one of its founders was Dante Gabriel Rossetti, whose brother the art critic, William Michael Rossetti, defined the Brotherhood's early doctrine as expressed by the following four declarations. Okay. To which I propose, having learnt more about Dante Gabriel Rossetti I will add a fifth Ooh, are you allowed to do that? <laughs> it's our show <laughs> that's my answer okay. William Michael Rossetti defined the brotherhood and the movement itself as number one to have genuine ideas to express mm -hmm. number two to study nature attentively so as to know how to express these ideas mm-hmm Number three, to sympathise with what is direct and serious and heartfelt in previous art to the exclusion of what is conventional and self-parading and learned by rote. Number four, most indispensable of all, to produce thoroughly good pictures and statues. And my fifth declaration, having learnt about Dante Gabriel Rossetti and his followers, uh. is that to be part of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood you need to fucking love wombats. <laughs> I think we're going to need some context. Dante Gabriel Rossetti, founder of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, poet, illustrator, artist, and translator, absolutely loved wombats in a way that doesn't even make sense. Wait, where is he from? He, he lives in Chelsea. <laughs> in 18 yeah. in the 1800s yeah what yeah he would have friends meet him at the wombat's lair in london zoo that was his okay. meeting place of choice <laughs> right. followers of the movement and rossetti described him as being the planet around which they all revolved okay 
and leading them all in picking up his language to acknowledge wombats as the most beautiful of God's creatures. No. <laughs> I, they're adorable. If I'm scrolling and a wombat pops up on my feed, it always makes my day better. Are they the most beautiful of all God's creatures? <laughs> That's a very high bar. <laughs> Rossetti was commissioned in 1957 to decorate the vaulted ceiling and walls of Oxford University Library with his friends no. and future leading artists Edward Burke Jones and William Morris. He didn't. The finished product yeah. was one of Arthurian legend. Okay. But throughout their work, as they moved from wall to wall, yeah. they seemingly got there and just covered the place in wombat cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> before then painting it over with the Arthurian with legend the mural. actual piece that was done this but, whole art movement in 19th century London <laughs> was obsessed with wombats <laughs> so if you if you go to the library whatever it was in Oxford underneath the murals depicting the Arthurian legend there's still a load of wombats if you, if you were to like peel back the fresco well enough uh -huh you may be able to find them. But it's it's written and recorded that they're there. I don't think people have done uh, that because yeah. the effort is to restore yeah, the actual yeah. thing. But, like, they were mad for wombats. <laughs> okay? To the point where I mentioned he repainted that with his friend and fellow artist and future leader of the movement, uh -huh. uh, one of the leading members of the movement, Edward Byrne Jones. Yeah. Like, he then became famous for his wombat cartoons, but they don't even make sense. So here is a wombat. <laughs> here is a cartoon done by Burne Jones in 1904 of a wombat running around the pyramids of Egypt. What? <laughs> 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 It's quite literally. I mean, it's like a, it's almost like a stylized pencil drawing. <laughs> in the corner, there is indeed the Great Pyramids of Giza with the sun rising over them. And then just a wombat in full flight, like all four feet off the ground, in like Superman esque pose across <laughs> the desert sands, is this wombat. <laughs> so. Ugh. How might we have come to this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking myself the same question. Yeah, why is it? Why is there? Why are they so obsessed? Right, we're gonna go through how wombats came to be a feature <laughs> of a, an English art movement behind the scenes in the late 1800s. So, only one of the pre-Raphaelites ever actually went to Australia, mm -hmm. and he went there because he failed as an artist here. <laughs> To then go and find his fortunes in the gold fields, mm -hmm. which he then also failed at. <laughs> <laughs> what did he end up doing? And was so bitter about Australia, he described it as topsy-turvy. And his description of nature's Thunderdome was that the seasons were the wrong way round, as were the times of day. The birds didn't sing, cherries had their stones on the outside, and the trees shed their bark, not the leaves. <laughs> And we've actually no idea if this guy ever saw a wombat. <laughs> but he's the only pre-Raphaelite to go there. What we do know is that for whatever reason out of all of Australia's wildlife, yep. 
seemingly from the get-go, they captured the imagination of English naturalists in some way. Because <clears throat> there's a lot of competition in Australia. they got some heavy hitters out there. Yeah. Yeah. The first documented landing by a European in Australia was 1606. Mm-hmm. And we know that at least by 1797, people in Europe knew about wombats. Okay. <laughs> we have a date for wombat, wombat intel arrival. Ground zero for wombat yeah. contact. Um, wombats were admired by what then, I guess, were Victorians, or at least close to them, mm-hmm. were admired for their stumpy strength, their patience, their placid manners, and a kind of stoic determination. <laughs> <laughs> you, you spoken by someone who has never seen a wombat. Yeah, the Victorian. Yeah, eighteen oh three saw the first wombats arrive in Europe. Oh, that's a big moment, a seminal moment. Yeah, and we know that at least one of them made its way to the menagerie of Empress Josephine Bonaparte outside Paris. Oh, Napoleon's <laughs> wife. <laughs> Napoleon's wife had one of the first pet wombats in Europe. (laughs) Okay. And letters would come back from these naturalists and people exploring Australia Hmm. with descriptions of wombats. But it is unclear as to whether or not Rossetti discovered them through these Mm -hmm. or literally just saw them once they were at the zoo. Right, okay. Okay. (laughs) What we do know about Rossetti is that he was absolutely mad for collecting animals. Ooh, okay. Okay. And we've discussed previously the Victorian menageries. Yeah. In 1952, mm. he moved into a very spacious house mm. in London. Now, I've looked up the address of this house. Yeah. It is about a six-minute walk from where I live. Really? Yeah. In his menagerie, in his house just down the road, he had owls armadillos, rabbits, dormice, a raccoon, peacocks, parakeets, kangaroos and wallabies, a marmot, a pomeranian, a deer hound, a Japanese salamander, <laughs> two donkeys, a bull that what? he was then forced to get rid of when it chased him around the garden, and at one point he tried to buy an African elephant. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. If the bull, if it ha- he has to get rid of the bull because it chased him around the garden, he's like, yeah, but I could probably handle an African elephant. But did he ever get his hand on a wombat? He shared the house with some friends mm-hmm. who <laughs> must have been very forgiving, but I'm going to read you the job titles of the two friends he shared it with. Okay. One of the friends was a poet, mm-hmm. and the other's listed profession was a semi-professional sadomasochist. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's found the right place. Yeah. <laughs> Who would spend his time sliding naked down the banisters. Oh, my God. Uh, that chafe. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to do that with a bull at the bottom. No. Semi-professional. God knows. <laughs> you know, part-time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of his time, he did you know, ballet. <laughs> so... Moved into this house in 52. Throughout the 50s and 60s, the pre-Raphaelites and others were drawing and doodling wombats all over. And I could quite honestly spend ages <laughs> just showing you wombat doodle after wombat doodle yeah. by Victorians. Because some of them are closer to the money than others. <laughs> and there were these descriptions coming back. And finally... In 1869, Rossetti acquired his wombat. Oh, yeah. I'm his happy. Collection. I'm happy for him. 
named Top, which was brought to the dinner table and allowed to sleep in a large centerpiece during mealtimes. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly for this, there was at the time or since been a um, rumour, urban legend, that, you know, in Alice in Wonderland... Um, at the Mad Hatter's party mm. there's a dormouse that sleeps in the teapot in the middle yeah 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 it was thought at one point to be tied to this but then they found um, basically proof of it actually having been written before oh, the before thing. this event but around about it was like ooh it inspired this and it was all that and that I really wanted that to be true but yeah now at the same time as him having this one back called Top he seemed look look <laughs> I don't want to brand someone who has all those animals and a semi-professional sadomasochist as a housemate who is so obsessed with wombats that he enforces it into what is essentially the doctrine and ethos of an entire art movement as being quote-unquote a weird guy. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also been about 150 years since he died. So, no, yeah. So I feel kind of at peace with that. Yeah. We're not going to be hearing from his lawyers. (laughs) Exactly. Now, I said that Wombat was called Top. Uh At the time, he was also, it turns out, quite obsessed with his mate's wife. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? We're talking, wait, we're talking about the chap, not the Wombat. Is the the Wombat... No, no. The Wombat, there are descriptions of the Wombat. It would... Sounds but, really cute, to be honest. Yeah. Roll around and. But we're not. We're like. not saying that the wombat was obsessed with his mate's wife. No, Rossetti was. Rossetti was. And the mate was called Topsy. Oh. And he called the wombat. To, it was something something oh. Topsy, and he called the wombat Top. Mm. And there seems to have been a very weird, like quite legit. Like, well, the word that was used in the thing was cuckolded relationship between <laughs> this guy Topsy Rossetti with this power move of importing a wombat and calling it Top. <laughs> And then, like, chatting up his wife or something. But <laughs> what an absolute 1800s power move. <laughs> <laughs> he would include the wombat in love poems he sent to the lady, with accompanying drawings showing her taking the wombat for a walk on a leash, with them both having halos over them. And the way the wombat is depicted in these sketches is seemingly some kind of power move in her having a leash on it as her having a leash on the husband Ooh, kind of thing. Okay. So here is Ooh. Parted Love by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Mm. When the wombat arrived, he was actually on retreat in Scotland. So he sent this. He was so excited to go back to his wombat <laughs> that this was the poem he sent ahead. Oh, how the family affections combat within this heart. Uh, yeah, you can see... <laughs> Excellent. You might be able to predict where the rhyming scheme is going in this. It's very much an A-A-A-A rhyming system. Oh, how the family affections combat within this heart, and each hour flings a bomb at my burning soul. Neither from owl nor from bat can peace be gained until I clasp my wombat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. He described Top as a joy, a triumph, a delight, and a madness. (laughs) However, unfortunately for Top, he was not long for this world. Aww. And two months after arriving, no. Top died on the 6th of November, 1869. It's almost as if probably Victorian England isn't the habitat. And Rossetti then went on to have him stuffed and was displayed in the hall. No one knows where the wombats ended up. Really? Yeah. 
He had it taxidermied and it was on display in his house and his house is... I cannot, like... <laughs> share a lot about myself but I'm not giving out my <laughs> postcode but like it is I can see that like really I could, yeah I'm so going anyway another thing I mean he wrote his poem about the wombat to that woman but he wasn't the only one writing wombat poems his sister his family was Italian and his sister yeah. wrote poems about wombats <laughs> like the wombat craze was deep <laughs> and I sent the but I sent it to a friend of mine to translate I figured that just Google Translate probably isn't going to do justice to a Victorian poem about a wombat Wombats. so I sent it to my Italian friend and the English translation is oh wombat agile joyful how have you grown furry and round ah do not flee like a vagabond do not vanish burrowing through the world it's really the weight of a hemisphere not a light burden That's so whatever they go yeah but yeah my friend, who is Italian, just added a note that she doesn't feel like it quite gives the impression it does in Italian. Because the words she uses in Italian, they all end in ondo, 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 atto, ondo, ondo, ondo. And it really gives the, the she has said, the feeling of something round sort of wobbling. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a lovelier ode to a wombat. I like how the first line is, what, oh so agile or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> In all of this, like I mentioned, you know, how did they find out? And there were these naturalists there and the drip feeding back of information. It seems a really weird, fluky quirk that in all of the 19th century, there's two mentions of kangaroos in the press. There's only one mention of possum and one of echidna in that time. But countless reports of what, like, they just, all the letters that were coming back. <laughs> and they're, like, there's, there's kangaroos jumping around in broad daylight. Yeah. There's all, you know, everything else going on in Australia. And then there's this nocturnal, sort of like a big badger. Yeah. That just everyone has fallen in love with. Yep. Yep. Mad. For two decades, this group of friends, led by Rossetti and an entire artistic movement, the Wombat, they just would, they'd cartoon it's it, revered. they'd draw it, they'd sketch it before doing it, they'd include it in love poems. The most beautiful. <laughs> of God's creatures. Amen. Yeah. Oh, and his collection of animals. Mm -hmm. It didn't end with Top the Wombat. Okay. Seemingly... Probably uh, should have. It culminated in the purchase of a llama and a toucan, which he then trained to wear a cowboy hat and ride around on the llama. <laughs> we were born in the wrong century. I fucking love Victorian. <laughs> Oh, great. And therein is the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. So stop asking, listeners. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted by Elliot Cassley on Instagram. And good luck with this one. It's the Portuguese Man of War. Elliot, you... God damn you. He did say something along the lines of good luck or <laughs> Godspeed or something like that. Let's get to know our foe. Found mainly in tropical and subtropical waters around the world, the Portuguese man of war is not a jellyfish, even though it does significantly resemble one with its body, in adverted commas, and tentacles that trail down. It is, in fact a siphonophore and is actually a colonial organism made up of many smaller units called zooids 
Now, I realise that's just a lot of words that sound like <laughs> utter Doctor Who weapons-grade nonsense. Uh, so it's going to be easier for you, listener, if you just Google it yourself while I do a terrible job of trying to explain what actually makes up a Portuguese man of war. So imagine a jellyfish, the body of which is called the pneumatophore, and that's a gas-filled flotation device that sits on top of the water's surface and acts as a sail, catching the wind and pushing this colony of creatures around. It's the sail that gives the animal its name after the old-school sailing warship, a Portuguese man-of-war, and can be anywhere from 10 to 30 centimetres long and 15 centimetres high. And in the event of a surface attack, it can be deflated to allow the colony to temporarily submerge, and then it can re-inflate and head back to the surface. There are then two types of zooids that run the hunting and feeding aspect of the colony. You've got the dactylozooids, which are the tentacles, and are generally around 10 metres long, but some can reach 30 metres long. They're covered in thread-like structures called nematocysts that inject venom on contact to sting, paralyse and kill their prey of squid and fishes and things like that. The tentacles are then contracted up into the rage of the gastrozoage, which surround and digest the food with enzymes in classic weird nature shit, let's eat something fashion. Now, they can catch loads of prey on these trailing tentacles, and when large groups of man of war have passed through areas in numbers more than a thousand strong, then they've been known to completely deplete fisheries. Just get all the fish on their tentacles as they move through. So how about those stings? They cause severe pain to humans and leave whip-like red welts on the skin that can last up to three days. Although the pain normally subsides after one to three hours, depending on the victim's biology, it says. So I don't know what your biology is like, Roddy, but Uh, you might want to take that into account. Mid to fair. (laughs) The venom can travel to the lymph nodes and may cause symptoms that mimic allergic reaction. Things like swelling of the larynx, airway blockage, etc, etc. But death is very, very rare. Removing the tentacles doesn't seem to do much either, though. And dead ones washed up on beaches can still sting just as powerfully as live ones even days after the death or the detachment of those tentacles. So, before I ask you the infamous question, is there anything in the animal kingdom you can look to for inspiration to defeat your enemy? Well, the loggerhead turtle feeds on Portuguese man-o'-war as the skin of its tongue and throat are too thick for the stings to penetrate, and the blanket octopus is immune to the venom of the man-o'-war, and young octopus have been observed to rip off the tentacles and carry them around for, and I quote, offensive and defensive purposes which just sounds like pure octopus carnage where they're <laughs> ripping off the tentacles and, and like flailing them around like whips <laughs> anyway thankfully it's only the portuguese man of war themselves you have to worry about and not the octopuses but the question is roddy shaw how many portuguese man of war are too many portuguese man of war so firstly Cheers, Elliot. (laughs) (laughs) It's formidable. Well played. And you're also fighting, you know, it's not even like one creature, it's multiple... I mean, they're amazing things. I don't understand how... Yeah, I know know you just explained it, but I don't understand it. Because is it an animal? Or is it three animals? Is it... Is it like, you know, in Power Rangers, is it like a (laughs) Megazord? I think it's basically that. Or what kept coming to my mind when I was reading about it and how it talks about if it gets attacked from the 
above, then the new metaphor can deflate and the colony goes down and then it can inflate and the colony goes back up. And it talks about it as a colony. It reminded me of, what's the series of books where all the cities become... Oh, um, the world engines or something. Mortal, mortal engines. Mortal engines. Yeah. It reminded me, where like London is a yeah. thing that goes right. It reminded me of something like that, where they're basically these colonies, like these cities of different organisms that are all built together, but they're so closely intertwined that they are essentially one organism. But then genetically... Mm-hmm. Well, they have to reproduce. Yes, yeah, so then does the... Does the sale bit need to mate with another sale bit and the food bit, the tentacles need to mate with another tentacle? I can't imagine. I can, I, I can only imagine that it's probably a bit like mitochondria in the cell where there's just been some agreement that yeah. like, you know, the mitochondria is a separate thing that got enveloped by the cell and then, but yeah. now is part of the same package. Yeah. I can only imagine it's something similar to that, but mm. I don't really know. Yeah, I'd like, if anyone listening knows anything <laughs> about Portuguese yeah. or, or siphonophores in general they are bonkers so in preparing for this battle uh-huh. I've and I really want to make this clear I never know what's coming mm-hmm. like that uh, I just mean preparing in all of the last 30 seconds <laughs> as I was reading out the description yeah I have pulled up what I thought would be useful <laughs> which is the Wikipedia page on the Portuguese Navy <laughs> right and I would like to read to you the Portuguese Navy's heraldic motto which is willing to do well <laughs> which is how I'm approaching this battle <laughs> oh what a heraldic motto Shrek. I'm willing to try <laughs> okay also fun uh fact the portuguese navy is the oldest continuing serving navy in the world oh. dating all the way back to the 12th century and still going come for the nature facts stay for the portuguese naval facts <laughs> exactly you know find me another show <laughs> <laughs> right so my weapons mm. brain yeah one body yeah <laughs> their weapons <laughs> lethal stings <laughs> 10 meter long stings weaknesses no brain yeah no one understands what's going on <laughs> no my weaknesses stings <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna call it <laughs> a fight for the ages <laughs> i like immediate points of weakness to me is the fact that like a hot air balloon they've literally got like a like a bag full of air that keeps them afloat that's got it that's got to be a weakness it is a weakness. Is another weakness a light breeze? Yeah. So they <laughs> so, so they have zero control over where they go. It is entirely dependent on wind and current and tide. Okay. And do they come in close to the shore? It's entirely dependent on wind and current and tide. Quite. They can, you can get big wreckages of them. I've seen. A, 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 I've been on a beach that has been littered with Portuguese man of war. This is when I was a kid. I was in, I think, some of the Canary Islands. But I remember- I was going to say, in Derbyshire. But, yeah. <laughs> but I remember going onto the beach and there being these, they sort of got like the, they look like, um, they almost look like cellophane sandwich bags yeah. sort of stuff, but they've got this bluish, bluish tinge to them. Yeah. And I remember being told not to go anywhere near them and they were just all over this beach and they'd just been like a, basically a storm or a current or a tide that had brought in this big, flock what is it 
a group of Portuguese man of war. Surely it's a what's a na- an armada? An armada. Yeah, um, yeah, that's quite good. <laughs> that is good. Okay. On the one hand, there is the cop out answer here mm-hmm. of I will just be upwind. Yeah, and then they're never getting near me. Yeah. I mean, the other things that we spoke about are the loggerhead turtle, loggerhead turtle, which can just straight up eat them. Talking about its thick skin. Time to get thicker skin. <laughs> I could just hurl some insults at you if you want. <laughs> and by the time you face the Portuguese man of war, you won't feel a thing. Right. Here's the thing. Mm. I'm swimming the channel for a fundraiser. Okay. Right. Why am I doing that? Who knows? But also mm. because when David Walliams did it, mm. I'm pretty sure they covered him in goose fat. They did. Right. Maybe in the absence of thick skin, <laughs> goose fat will work. <laughs> goose fat in the channel. <laughs> also, given the fact they're found in tropical and subtropical waters, they're probably not going to. They're probably going to be a bit more angsty and pissed off with the fact they're still <laughs> being dumped in the channel. <laughs> and here's the other thing. This is a weird fact to throw into the podcast, but I used to have braces a lot. Yeah. And when I was growing up, I had a load of braces. I had a load of I had whatever the point is now i generally always have a toothpick on me because teeth moved around the stuff and i just whatever and i feel like a toothpick that's going to do the job as aggressive and deadly as a portuguese man of war could be Mm -hmm. i have good relationships with the toothpicks yeah (laughs) and i think now is when i call upon them yeah yeah (laughs) because i reckon you smother me in goose fat and arm me with a toothpick and I will go toe-to-toe with a Portuguese man of war all day. Arguably be carrying the toothpick with you for precisely this occasion <laughs> all these years. <laughs> Ready at any moment to pop a Portuguese pneumatophore. My only addition to this is with tentacles 10 metres long, yes. you're going to need to mount the toothpick onto like a telescopic... Because for it to be within reach of you to be able to pop it, if you're in the water with it, those tentacles... But do the tentacles not just hang straight down? Well, I guess it depends on the currents and the wind. Right. But yes, I think they do predominantly hang down. Yes, you're right. Well, I'm going to do it when the tide's going out. Okay. In the English Channel. It's low tide in the English Channel today, everybody. Okay. It'd be a lot quicker to swim it. How do I get through the tentacles to pop the... I think it's just... I think it's goose fat. (laughs) I think it's good. Man, there's so much goose fat. I'm I'm going to look like an oil spill (laughs) moving through the channel. It's like a five-inch layer of goose fat. Exactly. So, it's that age-old question. How long will a five-inch layer of goose fat last in the channel? So, seven. Seven? Seven. Seven. I'm armed with goose fat and a toothpick, and I'm going at them in the channel. (laughs) We've got a question here from Rachel Busson, and Rachel has sent in, which animal seems like it was probably homeschooled? (laughs) (laughs) That's a sublime question. Yeah. Okay. Now... The way I always start with these questions is, what's the qualities of yeah. an X? And this is where the ice gets thin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, I will say. I used to work, one of my first jobs was working at a, um, a 
museum slash cave situation. <laughs> it's, it's a very unusual place, but it's a museum that is home to a gorge that had caves that you could take people in and there was loads of really cool uh, well there is loads of really cool ice age historical evidence of people living in the caves of hyenas taking mammoths and things in there there's bones there's the only ice age cave art in britain etc yeah because it is in the uk that's just with you talking about hyenas and stuff oh yeah like it's yeah yeah it's yeah. in nottinghamshire i mean it's like five minutes drive from where we are now it's a yeah. place called creswell crags check it out it's brilliant um but we used to get lots of school groups there yeah you could always pick out the homeschooled ones. How did you pick out a homeschool kid from a school group? No, I, I, no, as in like when the groups came, yeah. you could pick out the homeschooled groups. So like what they would do yeah. is you would have like organized trips of homeschooled kids. Ah, okay. So you would have, it would be like today, you know, we've got whatever junior school, we've got whatever. Today, it's like a homeschooled group. Right. And they're kids that have all come together to organize a trip to Creswell Craigs. Yeah you always knew that they were the homeschooled <laughs> kids but i would also like to say one of my best mates he's also uh homeschooled and he's great lovely so it giveth and it taketh away <laughs> is a phrase i think we seem to use quite a lot on this podcast um but in general i found them to be pretty weird <laughs> so what i think we need to go for is a bit socially awkward yeah they're generally not as well-rounded as the kids that have been to well, proper school. There's, there's less exposure yeah. to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite literally. <laughs> the only thing they get more exposure to is their own house. <laughs> so, could we actually start it from a very literal sense of which bird takes the longest to fly the nest? Ooh, okay. Like it, like it. Um, we'd be talking about, well, I mean, it's going to be a loose definition of nest if we're moving on to things like the emperor penguins and sure. things like that, okay? Yeah. Um, things like eagles spend it's probably a couple of months or something from hatching to fledging, yep. uh, that sort of time. How long, just to, just to benchmark this, yeah. how long does a pigeon take? Uh, a pigeon would probably take about i reckon 20 to 30 days would buy my okay. estimate for a pigeon a yep. blue tit and a robin would take between 10 and 14 days right from hatching to fledging and eagles are in the months and eagles are in months yeah so that is because they have to get quite big that's the bird equivalent of uh but then things like albatrosses and stuff they can they can also spend months i don't know the exact figures off the top of my head albatrosses fledge at seven and a half months old whoa so they're over half a year yeah i also think an albatross is an excellent they're weird it's fitting the vibe they're literally called wandering yeah they're just out once they leave the nest they're just adrift they're sort of like yeah lonesome wanderers <laughs> yeah they're weird albatross is a good shout yeah they're on the board they're on the board what else tell you what another animal that's coming to mind i think beavers would homeschool their kids yeah, beavers are homeschooled. Because there's just like, you know, yeah. the whole sort of the whole vibe around a beaver lodge and the family gives me the vibe that they what they just think they'd know better. Yeah. Groundhogs <laughs> are the Amish version of, you know, like out in Nebraska <laughs> yeah. or one of, I mean, 
the flyover states i think they're called you know, this <laughs> big bit in the midwest and stuff and a lot of wheat the bits of america where there's a lot of wheat have animals that homeschool their children yeah maybe <laughs> what i'm saying is there's maybe a venn diagram between animals that burrow yeah bits of america with a lot of wheat mm-hmm. and the amish right and what I'm putting in the middle of that Venn diagram is yeah. groundhogs. Right. I imagine them having these big networks of tunnels because yeah. they're very colonial, all these animals, and they're very... Groundhogs, I think, are quite insular. They're like a fat meerkat. Yeah. They're a type of squirrel, and it's the kind of, you know, any disturbance, and they all run into the tunnels. Yes, but don't the Amish have Amish schools? Yeah, but that's like homeschool plus, isn't it? It's, <laughs> like, you know, it's hardly broadening horizons. But I think when I think about homeschooling, what I think is that they're having limited social opportunities with kids their own age. Yeah. I think in the in the communities of Groundhogs, there's loads of kids running around. That's true. For something like an albatross. Yeah. They are in they are in sort of loose colonies, but they do keep themselves to themselves. Beavers just seem like we're on our own it's only our family on this lake us against the in world this lodge yeah you're gonna be taught in the same way that your mother was and yep. your grandmother was yep. and you'll learn to chew wood in the old beaver way yep okay i think that's all pretty solid albatross beaver groundhog for the is there any is it, are we missing just any other just quickly going reptiles amphibians oh amphibians it's poison dart frogs poison dart frogs which lay there so mm. a lot of frogs frogs in general whatever what have you but the frogs you might think of certainly in a uk sense just all go to a pond together big spawn in session loads of tadpoles happening there but poison dart frogs the very very colorful ones have a very limited number of tadpoles and then carry them on their back mm. up trees to then put each tadpole in in fact this is more than homes each tadpole gets put inside a bromeliad which is um, a plant which grows on trees and basically the way their leaves come out there's almost like a cup of water in the middle so if you can imagine a very leafy egg cup and each tadpole gets put just in this so it's a tiny amount of water and then each parent has to come and give each tadpole a bit of food that's almost homeschooling in a hostage situation <laughs> like i don't know if you've ever seen the room or that kind of thing where they're like locked in and see- i mean if you've seen the room you know what i'm on about but yeah like that's incredibly insular because i think they put separate tadpoles in separate egg cups yeah. so you wouldn't even know your siblings yeah they put they they distribute them in different bromeliads yeah. up a tree and yeah. then the female lays i think an or multiple unfertilized eggs into the cup for the tadpole to eat yeah yeah that is very that's a very good shout yeah they're completely isolated cut off from, from even their own siblings yeah and then when they eventually do get out, there's suddenly this explosion of colour yeah. <laughs> as they begin to see the world. But, but if you interact with them the wrong way, you will die. Yeah. <laughs> they have the capacity to kill you at any given second. Let's say they leave that situation completely toxic. <laughs> Poison dart frogs. Top of their own class. <laughs> Hello, listener. It's that part of the show that's just for me and you because me and Roddy forgot to record the outros when we were together recording the series. So, how was it? Enjoy it? If you did, then please do drop us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're feeling really generous, then we accept donations over on buymeacoffee.com forward slash geese. Until then, we'll see you next week. <laughs>